Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Interviews ought not be exercises in universal opinion-mongering. They need to confess to the mystifying principalities and powers of ordinary life. Confess them and manifest them. That's what interviews should be. Not interrogations, not exposés, but inquiries, animated by wonder and by a sense of urgency about how things have come to be as they are. Whatever sense of trespass or injustice or grievance might prompt the encounter, dignity and the possible presence of a reading or viewing or listening audience oblige the partners involved towards wonder, towards respect for the unknown, the unmet, and the unimagined. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the show. What I just read was a quote from Stephen Jenkinson. Um, I'm participating in this really wonderful conversation series hosted by Kimberly Ann Johnson, who's been on the podcast before. She did an absolutely spectacular two-part podcast with Stephen a few months ago. I think her podcast is called Sex, Birth, Trauma. Um, if you have not listened to the conversation, I highly recommend it. And apparently that podcast, that two-part podcast episode was so popular that she decided to host, I think it's like a six-part conversation series with Stephen, who personally I uh, think is somewhat of a prophet. Uh, I really resonate with his perspective and his words And that quote that I just read you, I think, really spoke to what I try to bring to this podcast through these interviews. Um, I think a lot of people write in and something I've talked about before. And I know it's not just for me, but, you know, there's this sort of popular rhetoric or narrative around like you should have people on the podcast that you disagree with. Like people want to watch a boxing match or listen to a boxing match or something. And it's I always find that commentary or that request ironic because I disagree with every single person that's been on the podcast in one way or another. Like I don't agree a hundred percent with anybody. And a lot of the time I don't, you know, have people on the show to prove my point 
or to get into an argument, but instead to show that even though we have a differing of opinion about something, that we also have a lot of common ground. And if you listen carefully, I would imagine that you can actually hear the disagreements. Or if you've been listening to my show for a while and you know my opinions quite well, you can tell that what some people say don't align with me. And I don't I don't take that opportunity to argue, but I take it to deepen the conversation. And as Stephen Jenkinson said, I don't create interrogations or exposés, but instead inquiries animated by wonder and by a sense of urgency about how things have come to be as they are. This episode you're about to hear is with a close friend of mine, Tim, a new close friend, (laughs) but it's not very difficult to become quite close to someone who seems to share so many of uh, your mythologies. This podcast is in fact quite a bit about mythology. Um, The uh, music that you heard at the beginning of this podcast behind the quote was a piece of music from Angels in America. Uh, This is my all-time favorite film, which is based on a play. It's six hours long, and you can watch it on HBO. And it's also Tim's favorite uh, piece of writing uh, film. And we discovered this maybe within 48 hours of meeting each other, and it became such an important and meaningful basis for so many of our conversations. I've really never met anyone who is obsessed with angels in America as much as I am. You'll hear us talk more about that in the conversation. Um, Coming to you live right now from the parking lot of a Trader Joe's in Tucson, Arizona. I know it's been a while since I released a podcast. I've literally gone from... Guatemala, to LA, to Vegas, to Utah, to New Mexico, to Colorado, back to New Mexico, to Arizona, and now we're headed back to LA and we fly to Thailand on the 7th of December. So there's a lot going on. And I this episode is like the dorkiest, nerdiest Angels in America episode ever. And I wanted to include so many things in it. So it required me to like sit down and focus. And I've not been able to do that until right now. Um, So apologies for the lag in the podcast release. Hopefully you were able to go back and listen to some old episodes if you uh, were waiting for a new one. Um, What else to talk about? I did want to mention that there are still several spots left in Whitney and my uh, Venus retrograde workshop. If you did not listen to the last episode, but this is something you're interested in, I highly recommend going back because it provides a really good basis for what we're going to do. But basically, to sum it up, Venus will be going retrograde over the winter, and Whitney and I decided to create a small intimate workshop around this retrograde. There's a lot of misconceptions, false narratives around what Venus retrograde means, what retrogrades mean in general. And we really wanted to create uh, a group and a support network so that we could all sort of work on letting go of whatever we need to let go of in, in order to invite in what our, our, you know, our true alignments are. Um, when we think about Venus, we often think about like love and pleasure and joy and everything that makes us feel happy and good. And that's all relevant and that's all true. But of course, within the archetype of love exists grief and exists heartbreak and exists the need to let go in order to invite in. And of course, what we love is not just about partners, but it's also about where we live. It's also about our community. It's also about our friendships, about the voices we hear in our heads. What are our core needs? 
and our core alignments and the things that would make us feel really, really good about our lives and what are the things that are standing in the way of those things. I feel like a lot of people teach about manifestation or something like that and they only focus on what you want to let in. But often there isn't space to let those things in because we haven't let go of the crap yet, right? So like in simplest terms, if you want a new bed, you actually have to get rid of the old bed. If you want a new relationship, you not only have to get rid of the old relationship, but also the harmful or toxic patterns that underpinned the bad relationship in the first place. Otherwise, we'll just replace it with the same thing over and over and over again. I know this is an experience that so many of us have had. Um, same with, let's say, choosing a place to live or choosing a community. If we keep, you know, what's that thing, the definition of insanity, we, we do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. Um, so this, this is going to be not just a workshop, but also a ritual, um, and a gathering and, uh, a course all in one. It's only going to be 25 people and the first class we're going to meet three times. One, while Venus is in her shadow, meaning she's in the portion of the sky that she's going to go retrograde but hasn't quite yet. That first class is on December 11th. Then we're going to meet again in January at the very midpoint of the retrograde and then once more in February when the retrograde is over. And the first class is going to be a lot of teaching. It's going to be Whitney and I. And by the way, if you haven't heard Whitney on the show, she's been on twice the last episode and then one, I don't remember the episode number, maybe 88. I could be making that up, but it was about Saturn. Um, Highly recommend it. Uh, Whitney and I studied astrology in the same apprenticeship. That's how we met. And um, we're going to meet three times. As I mentioned, the first class is going to be a lot of teaching. We're going to talk about some mythologies that underpin Venus's retrograde, Venus in general. And then the next two classes are going to be discussions. So we're going to be working with each of you directly because although Venus will be retrograde for all of us, we all have natal charts. And so her transit uh, retrograde in Capricorn this winter will be different for each of us, how that manifests depending on where in our charts it shows up. So we're going to be breaking everyone down into groups based on your uh, chart and we're going to be helping you figure it out and we're going to be supporting each other through the difficult process of um, the difficult process of letting go. You know, I think as you'll hear in this conversation, like so much of what we're missing is community and is tribe and We're expected to live alone, to process alone, to do everything alone, and it makes everything so much harder. And not only that, but we don't get the the proper mirroring. I feel like so many of us are, certainly this is the case for me, we're able to like perpetuate the bullshit simply because I didn't have other people telling me it was bullshit or showing me it was bullshit just through their presence alone. And so that's what I hope this group will help all of you to, to do is to get support from others and also be challenged a little bit to really consider like, why is it that I can't find the right relationship? Or why is it that I'm struggling to find what I want to do with my life, whether that's a career or purpose or anything else? If you'd like to sign up for that, go to starhearthastrology.com, S-T-A-R-H-E-A-R-T-H.com. I'll also put a link in the description of this podcast episode. Click on, I think it's called Classes on her website, on Whitney's website, and you'll see Retrograde with Intention, which is our course. If you can't find it or if you have any questions, um, please don't hesitate to send me an email, anyakotz at gmail.com. 
or send me a message on Instagram or wherever. <laughs> send me a letter. No, don't do that. It won't get here in time. And I don't have an address. Okay, I think that's all the housekeeping I want to talk about. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. We have a growing, amazing community of humans that you can meet remotely and then in real life, as many of them do. We have a Discord server and workshops. We just announced our winter book club. We're going to be reading Memories, Dreams, and Reflections by Carl Jung, which is fucking awesome and I'm super excited about. As I say all the time, I'm like, don't ever want to read a book alone again. Um, really I'm only interested in it, in reading it with all of you guys and then discussing it live. So if you want more information about how to meet other like-minded humans who listen to this show, how to get more involved in the podcast overall and support it financially so that I don't have to have any ads on the show ever, uh, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz is the way to do that. All right. I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, Please don't hesitate to reach out to Tim. I will provide his contact info in the description of the show and at the end of the episode if you enjoy what he has to say. I'm so grateful to meet him. Uh, this was someone that Chris met like 10 years ago or something, and they can't quite figure out how they met each other, but they think it's because Tim wrote a really funny blog post about man purses and uh, Chris was searching for man purses on the internet and found this blog post and reached out to Tim and Tim was really shocked by this because he had just uh, happened to read Sex at Dawn so it was this very weird synchronicity and then when we got to Antigua a few months ago uh, Tim saw via Instagram I think that uh, Chris and I were there and said like hey I live here now Um, so we reconnected and I'm so glad that we did that trip to Guatemala turned out to be nothing as we expected. We thought it was going to be a lot of quiet time for writing and instead we ended up staying up late almost every night drinking lots of wine with Tim and talking about neo-tribalism, which can't really complain. Am I right? <laughs> anyway, uh, enjoy this podcast episode. I am going to play you in with a song called The Truth About the World by Andrea Marie. Please enjoy the song. Please enjoy the conversation and I will catch you on the other side.
garden in Antigua and Chris and I came to Antigua without having any idea that Tim was here and uh, Tim living here has been the highlight of our trip and we have had a lot of really interesting conversations about a lot of interesting things um, and share a lot of similarities and yeah common interests so I'm really excited to have you yeah we've sort of run the gamut of all sorts of modern issues. Yeah. Well, I feel like we should start just by the bizarre coincidence that occurred, because it's, it's, a, it's a great jumping off point for all of this. Sure. Um, which, have, for those of you that have been listening to the podcast for a while, have probably heard me talk about Angels in America quite a bit, which is a play um, written by Tony Kushner that was turned into like an HBO special. We figured this out. It was like 2000... Three or something? Somewhere around there. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Um, and I was quite young, and it's like a six-hour, like, mythology, basically, um, that I'm very obsessed with. And in the first intro, it's no longer in the intro to the podcast, but in the first intro, the end of it was The Great Work Begins. Um, and that was the name of the first episode of the podcast as well. So I'm obsessed with Angels in America, and I think it represents so many important themes and has inspired me for many years. And we were sitting, it was like our first night, hanging out, eating dinner, and Tim was like, I don't think you guys have ever heard of this, but something that really inspires me is, and that I'm really into is Angels in America, and I like nearly fell off of my chair. Um, so yeah, I want to I wanna hear about some of the reasons why you became interested in Angels in America. Well, it's, and I think you and I have discussed this, right? It's Angels in America is generally seen as something that the gay community watches. Yeah. And you and I uh, have both have such strong ties to that community. Even though I'm straight, I have a lot of um, members in my family who are gay. Um, but in a weird way, I have come to identify with Angels in America probably way more than even they have yeah. in certain ways. And it's, uh, as I've said to you, I think it's one of the most important modern philosophical works. And we don't often talk about modern movies and TV shows in the way that we talk about literature and things, but I think we should. Like, I think some of these things, there's some really good writing that happens uh, that to me is on par with 
the greatest literature uh, that's ever existed. And I would put Angels in America there. That's how crazy I am <laughs> about it. I <laughs> know I am too. It's um, been, yeah. this last month has been different ways in which Anya and I can slip quotes from Angels <laughs> in America into our current conversations. And we always, Chris tends to raise his eyebrows, I think, a little bit as we... <laughs> Yeah, it's a little bit of insidery speak that has gone on between us. So yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but it's been awesome. And I guess let's start. Uh, you were raised Mormon. I was. <laughs> How did that go for you? <laughs> well, all my ancestry goes clear back to the beginning of the church, so it was in my blood. And from my early, I was all in as a kid. It was, um, it was it was a big part of my identity. And until I left the church when I was 26 years old, but up until that point, I was a, what Mormons would call a true blue Mormon, a a Mm -hmm. true believer in Mormonism. And, um, you know, that's a whole other story we get into and we have talked about it, but you know, I've hit this point in my life for a long time after leaving the church, I was angry about that, but I hit a point several years back in which it really became apparent to me that I'm the one who chose to leave, Mm. that my extended family members are, um, you know, I can disagree with them all I want. Um, But I used to be angry as though they kicked me out. But in truth, I chose to leave and have come to recognize that that choice, um, it's given me peace Mm -hmm. that it has been my choice to leave rather than staying in a place of anger about what I did. But because of that, it's also allowed me to see... um, some positive aspects of what my life now is having been influenced by that experience. So, right. And can you sort of credit, was there like a moment for you where you realized, holy shit, this isn't for me anymore? Or was that something that sort of occurred over a longer period of time? Well, yeah, there's the 30 second version of that and the three hour version of that, (laughs) but there was a moment. So I, uh, got married in the Mormon temple. And for those of you who don't know, to uh, to go into a Mormon temple, it's different than a Mormon chapel. A Mormon temple requires that you're the ultra elite member of Mormonism and that you follow certain strictures in the way you live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I got married there and my gay brother had recently been excommunicated from the church for being gay mm-hmm. and waited for me in the parking lot during my wedding. And there was something really striking in that moment of, you know, Mormonism prides itself on valuing the family more than anything. And at that moment at which my older brother had to wait in the parking lot while I got married, um, it created a a break for me that uh, I think was the final break. In fact, I left the church the next day after being married in in the Mormon temple. And that just is unheard of. Yeah. So, um, and so leading up to that though, I'm sure you were at least subconsciously kind of recognizing things that weren't aligned for you or. Sure. And there's, you know, it's interesting because I grew up, I didn't grow up in Utah Mormon. I grew up in the suburbs of Seattle in a Mm -hmm. place called Issaquah. And in my high school of 400 or my graduating class of 400 kids. So, you know, there were maybe 10 of us who were Mormon. And not only that, Mormonism in the particular small town I lived in was a hotbed of Mm -hmm. anti-Mormonism 
the world's leading author of anti-Mormonism literature, which is mostly written from a born-again Christian perspective, was excommunicated from my church in Issaquah, Washington. So as a little kid, I grew up on the playground being called a devil worshiper. Um, I, I, was a, I was made to feel very much an outsider and very right. much a minority. As I, There were kids in my neighborhood that were not permitted to play with me. And in a weird way, as in all groups that feel marginalized, um, that bonded me actually more to my Mormonism in a way. Like it, mm. I had, I mean, I learned apologetics at, in third grade and, you know, arguing on the school bus. And because of that, I got really good at arguing for my religion. Yeah. And in, but in lots of ways, as I said, I've come to appreciate, like that has given me a foundation of, um, you know, it, it later helped walk me out of the church in certain ways as well. But it also became a foundation for the rest of my life, um, learning how to think critically about my beliefs and the world and the intersection of all of that mm -hmm. uh, led to my career, led to all, you know, it just, it shaped my life in so many different ways. So, so when you decided to leave, was there, like, did you already have close friends or people in a quote-unquote community that were outside of Mormonism or was your life like hyper-focused? No, so there was, yeah. again, because I didn't grow up in Utah, right. all, almost all my best friends were not Mormon. Right. And um, and we've talked about this. My best friend was African-American and that was another breaking point for me when I realized the Mormon church didn't allow full inclusion of African-Americans into the religion until 1978. And I hadn't thought critically about that until I went to college at Brigham Young University and uh, took a class and it, it led me down the road of really exploring race relations and how our church played into it. And I remember feeling so ashamed in this one moment, um, such that I even called my best friend and apologized to him at that point, even before I'd left the church for, you know, so that was certainly a breaking point. But I wasn't, like I said, I, I grew up in mostly in non-Mormon settings around non-Mormons and dated, uh, I don't think I seriously dated a Mormon woman until after college even. Like mm -hmm. it was, it was mostly non-Mormons that I spent my time with. Yeah. So was that, what happened when you decided to leave? Because I know a lot of, especially the Mormons that are like, they, all they know are other Mormons, that there's so much excommunication, but it sounds like at least with your mother, for example, you guys were able to stay in contact. Yeah. You know, I lost... Our family exploded for all sorts of reasons, and central to that is is the departure of all of my siblings from Mormonism. But at that point, we lost all of our extended family. We've never really had much of a relationship with our extended family since that moment. Um, it exploded everything, though, in, in lots of ways, even within our family, even within my siblings. That, that experience, I think, has been a catalyst that has sort of blown us all on our own separate paths. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Do you? How many siblings do you have? There are five and a half of us. So you, I, have, I have a half sibling who's gay as well. So. <laughs> We're gonna get into this. Yeah. So, and all of you left yeah, Mormonism. We all did. Um, what order? Where were you in the order of, of leaving? Yeah. I would have been. I think I was second. My mm -hmm. my oldest brother, who was gay, who got excommunicated, was kicked out of the church. Right. So. Um, but I think I was the next one to voluntarily leave. And what your mom is still 
practicing she is. Mormon. Mm-hmm. So have you guys had conversations with her about all of this? <laughs> like how did, was that a smooth transition? Am I, and I, I mean, I assume that she must have wondered or been curious as to like why all of her kids left and, and just her own kind of like reaction or. Well, in the timing of everything, uh, there was this sort of explosion over a short period of two or three years in which my parents were divorced. My brother was excommunicated. I left the church. Mm -hmm. Um, A bunch of things happened at the same time. So I think because my parents felt their own shame around their own divorce and Mm -hmm. everything, you know, that happened regarding that, it sucked some of the air out of them speaking to us about that. Um, And my mom was never... My mom, unlike Mother Pitt, she didn't have that kind of confidence in herself to even challenge us. And, and, and to be honest, she did eventually has become sort of a voice to challenge the church within her small little ways on uh, the gay issue, for example. Mm-hmm. And so she found ways to stay. But And I don't know if we'll transition to this, but there was another point at which I started to realize that you know, it's easy when you leave the church to argue back with members of the church and say, how can you stay there? Right. But I, I can't in all good consciousness say to everybody that your life will be better if you leave the church. Right. And my mom is one of those people who we could have forced her out of the church, but I think she would have been miserable without the community, um, without the experience. It's, it's everything she knew. And, and, and had we taken that tack with her, I think that would have been a huge mistake. Yeah. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot, too. I think I sort of started out in a more, I don't know, fundamentalist position around, like, everyone should be the kind of, like, innovator, independent kind of personality type. And I, when I recently had our friend Tao on the podcast... And he said something about how he's like that and he's always kind of trying to like break the system or, you know, figure something else out. And he said, you know, and I don't want to force that or project that onto everyone because what chaos we might live in if everyone was trying to buck the system all the time. And like, is there some degree of, you know, practicality or benefit to having both, right? Like the sure. systems and the people that... Well, and I don't want to jump ahead in the conversation, but where I'm at today, like this has become really central yeah. to all of my thinking. And it starts with this word, we. I think the word we is perhaps the most problematic word in in our culture, in the world, because we've come to assume that we means all of us yeah. and that we're all the same and we all think the same. Yeah. And as I've mentioned to you several times over the last month, I've really hit this point where I actually think, uh, and I, I almost can't say this too strongly. I, I think our effort to change the world that we instill in every little kid who's born um, is, is a mistake yeah. that we when we start talking, even at the scale of a city, is too big to encompass. Yeah. And we have this illusion that we can all understand each other and therefore we can all say what the world should be. Yeah. And I've really stepped back from that. And in fact, I'm writing this book right now and I, I'm take, I take great pains to avoid using the word we. 
And in fact, I like I think that's fundamental to the problems we're having in the United States right now. The very first word in our constitution is we the people. But we're not we're no longer a we. And I We were never really a we. I no. Think, yeah. But but you know, you can get farther and farther away from it. As yeah. you know, the more homogenous a society is, the more a we can work, right? right. And uh, but I would, as the human animal, and um, the species was never developed to understand a world of billions of people. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think that's an illusion that in our modern times we live with this idea that, you know, I, in fact, I find it ironic. We, we tend to teach all the children that it's their duty to grow up and change the world. But we're also in a time where we're loath to teach them a core basic set of moral values, right? Yeah. So we teach them that they should change the world, but we don't, we don't tell them what it should be. And there's a, which I'm not saying we should, but it's, there's this idea that, you know, we assume that every kid can grow up to change the world. And we sort of, you know, the irony of that was when Trump, for example, got elected, you know, it used to be said that anyone could grow up to be president. And now we've learned that, yeah, <laughs> anyone can grow up to be president. And that's not necessarily a good thing, right? right? So. <laughs> yeah, I do want to get more into that. But I wanted to also, I mean, it actually sort of relates to this. Um, something that you said right when we started speaking that I haven't been able to stop thinking about is this like, I know a ton of, first of all, I know a ton of ex-Mormons. Like, they just come into our lives constantly. And I think it has something to do with what you're talking about. Like, in any kind of a community, there are benefits to being in a community, obviously. Like, we're a communal species. And so I think they're sort of drawn to our community because community in general is something that's important to them. And also, I think, even though I'm not or I wasn't a Mormon this whole process of like deconstructing your entire world and your entire set of moral values or understanding of how the world works and having to like break that down and then reconstruct it, I think is also something that in a different way I relate to a lot. And so I think there's some common ground there as well. But what's also interesting is that there are so many ex-Mormons and maybe my focus group is just like strangely tainted, but that are gay or um, transgender or non-binary or non-monogamous or like there are a lot of like forward thinking, you know, not standard, you know, uh, cis straight people. Um, and, uh, Chris and I kind of asked you why you thought that was. And I, I wanted you to share your, sure. your, your theory. Cause I think it's so, well, positive. as I, as I said, my ancestry in and the religion goes clear back to the founding. And so I have polygamists on both sides of my family. Yeah. And and that cultural idea, even though the, the official church banned it in the late 1800s, um, it sticks with you in a way that, you know, when I'm reading the histories of my family and I see that they were in, in, in non-traditional marriages, op- I think it opens you to the idea that this one form of marriage isn't sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. In fact, within our religion, even within modern Mormonism, it's still, they don't like to talk about this, but the doctrine is still that in heaven, you know, polygamy will still be practiced. That's, you know, so that's part of the theology you grow up with. Yeah. And so when you grow up with this idea that at core, um, 
everything we're being taught by modern conservatism about the nuclear family runs counter to your religious upbringing. I think it just opens you up to this idea that uh, the forms that we're in don't always fit. And I don't know that that produces more gay people or if it just has caused them to come out of the closet in greater numbers um, up to this point. But yeah, you know, I have two gay brothers. I married a woman who came out as lesbian when we divorced. Uh, I have a transgender daughter. Uh, it's, it, it's, but you know, I think, in fact, this ties back to the Angels in America thing. And and sometimes I feel like this is an unpopular thing to say at this point in say history. <laughs> but I think we're all in the closet. Yeah. I don't think there's such thing as those people who are queer and those people who aren't. Uh, for example, I think a lot of people in monogamous marriages are are suffering because their identity or their their own being doesn't necessarily fit within that role. And I always felt that way. And uh, you know, my ex-wife and I had. Um, we experienced uh, a level of non-monogamy and openness in our marriage, and and that felt way more natural to me. And so, uh, even though I get identified as a as straight, I, I don't, you know, I still think, as we've talked, I, I think, um, I almost think non-monogamy should be considered an orientation, yeah. because I do believe that there are people who are actually pretty monogamous in there. I mean, if we look at humans from an anthropological view, as though an anthrop would look down upon it, mm-hmm. it would be hard to argue that monogamy isn't inherent within the species because it's so common, yeah. right? So there, I think there are a lot of people who are comfortable in those, but there's certainly a lot of people who are not comfortable in that. Right. And you won't, like, like I, and I, I don't want to pit anyone against anybody, but I almost think it's, it's one of the most uncomfortable conversations to have right now is if you say you're in an open marriage, um, you know, my brothers who came out early in, you know, late seventies, they, they went through hell. And even when they were kids, that was, it was hellacious for them yeah. and some horrible stories, you know, clear back to BYU using electroshock therapy to, to try and cure them. But, but then as my, my now transgender daughter came out as gay first when she was 12, you know, she didn't lose a single friend or like it in certain pockets of the country. Right. That's just not, but it would still be uncomfortable for me in Seattle. Like I, I worked in politics and I don't think you could run for office in Seattle <laughs> no as a, in an open marriage. Right. Like, I don't think you could do that. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it has, I mean, I think about this a lot too, because I think that the most common form of like publicly displayed non-monogamy is polyamory and I wonder sometimes I wonder if like we're still operating from this very like being ashamed about sex standpoint that it isn't okay to like have a relationship and be open and have casual sex with people like you we now have to develop multiple committed intimate relationships with no yeah look it's it's what do they call in the you know it's funny because and we've talked about this I'm not for myself yeah the the road down polyamory never really appealed to me. It just, and they have a term for it, I think polymonogamy or something mm, yeah. to that end. Um, but yeah, it, it, again, it's, we, we've just tried to, you know, we've tried to fit the modern idea of monogamous marriage into polyamory. And, 
Um, and again, there are, I know people in Seattle for who that works and that's great for them. It just was never that appealing right. uh, for me. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think to your point about politics, like to me, that's where it comes from. And, um, there's a book that I talk about all the time that like really changed my life that my dad gave me probably around the same time that I watched Angels in America, actually, which was called the trouble with normal. And it was written by this really brilliant gay man. Uh, and I think it must've come out sometime in like the mid to late nineties. And he was making the case against gay marriage <laughs> in a time when basically sure. most of the gay community was trying to fight for this. And his whole point was like, we're already outside of the system. We've been rejected. We've been denied. We've not been protected. And especially during the AIDS crisis, like we all worked so hard to come up with these sort of like unconventional kinship systems and these communities where we are all supporting each other and living together. And, and all of us were non-monogamous and open and why are, you know, I understand the desire to want quote unquote equal rights, but like, is that really what we want to be fighting for? Um, sure. So it's like, I think if, you know, as far as politics goes, it's like, what's his name? Pete Buttigieg, I feel like was able to run for president because he was in a very kind of traditional sure. monogamous, you know. But, you know, so my career, I worked in politics in Seattle yeah. and and this sort of merges back to what you said about what did I take out of Mormonism and into my political world. And, and I was part of those fights uh, for gay marriage alongside with my brothers and friends who are gay. And, and, and sure, it was easy to fall into that. You know, why are we fighting? Why are we just trying to duplicate? But this brings up another topic that you and I broached a lot. And it's the idea of mythology. Marriage is a mythology that, you know, every culture lives within a framework of mythology mm -hmm. and a lot of people especially now as 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 we get into what i call radical individualism a lot we we're all sort of caught in this fight where we want to tear the whole thing down today right mm -hmm. and and a lot of people um and rightly so like there's nobody whose rights should have to wait for something but mythologies are really powerful and i think part of what helped move the gay uh, gay rights agenda for was adopting marriage and yeah. for better or worse. Right. Yeah. But it, it played into the existing yeah. mythology yeah. and I play with this idea a lot. So, you know, if you're a modern liberal leftist in Seattle, like I was, um, it, it sort of becomes common to speak of and think about mythology as that, which is false. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, it's yeah. just a myth. Right. And I've, I have a different definition now because I think we all live in mythologies. I think everybody does. And I, what I define mythology now is that which you believe to be true. Yeah. Right. So it could be, you know, the big bang is a mythology and I'm not saying that it's not factually based, right. but science is a, an evolving story. Right. So you can't say I believe in the big bang because it's true because you have to also recognize that that story is going to change over time. And so which part of your belief was true, like today's version of the Big Bang or the version that we have 50 years from now? But the point being that all in my political world, um, and I learned this early on from losing campaigns and winning campaigns, you can only stretch a mythology of a culture so far, right? And, and it's, in some ways that's sad, and in some ways it's good. Like there's, 
mythology helps guide us down these paths, you know, and we're tugging at it, but you can never really, it's, you know, we're, the world's changing at an ever increasing pace, but sometimes, you know, there's a limit to how fast things can change, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. I mean, and I absolutely agree with you about the mythology and I feel like I try to teach that through my own like astrological archetypal lens. Um, because it is wild how we've completely forgotten that we are acting out a specific narrative in our lives and that we have the power to alter that narrative if we want. Um, and maybe that's also partially like why I have so many connections to ex-Mormons because that's what that process is, right? It's like being born within a specific ideology, within a specific narrative and within a specific mythology and the only way to extricate yourself from that is to, one, realize you're within it. And then second, secondly, like, feel courageous or motivated or brave enough to reconstruct a different one. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I think we've, we're losing our power. A power we could have because we're so averse to the ideas of mythology now and we're so averse to claiming a mythology a lot of us leftist atheist liberals are so averse to these things we've been harmed by them right and so so we we're spiritual we're not religious right anything that that takes any shape or form but when i left mormonism in fact this is how i part of how i transitioned was i used to, because i i got involved i worked in politics and that's another story how a mormon got involved in politics through marijuana um, but I, I used to say both to myself and to others, when I left Mormonism and I entered politics, I stopped working for Zion and I started working for a more perfect union. Hmm. That was my new mythology. That was my new utopia that I was trying to get to. I think we all, I, I think you lose power in your life if you don't allow yourself to define your utopia. And I don't necessarily mean the place that's perfect, but the place where you're actually going and the mythology that's going to help you get there. And if you don't recognize that, I think you lose some of the power that you could leverage to move yourself in those directions more efficiently. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. What you just said reminded me. I have these close friends who um, have this podcast about the climate and environmentalism and basically are trying to show that mainstream conventional environmentalism is still operating within the mythology of consumerism and capitalism, right? Like sure. just because we're, we don't have cars running on gas doesn't mean we're Tesla. Not, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean we're not mining for lithium and fucking up the land in another way. Right. Like we're sure. still operating from this idea of consumption and, um, and, and Marin, uh, one of the co-hosts, she, one of the things she says is like, you know, what gods are you serving? And I think it's a really interesting question because, and I want to hear your, I know we've talked about this too, like from so many different angles, but it's like we think we've opted out of serving a God and we think by being an atheist or a vegan or a leftist or a woke person, like we think we're operating independently and individually. And I think that's so naive um, and absurd of, you know, if, okay, we're, we're uh, you know, a leftist, progressive person who believes that climate change is real. Um, but then what do you do? Where are you shifting your focus and what are you putting your energy into? Um, and yeah, I think like, 
I mean, do you think as humans, like that it's impossible ultimately to sort of extricate ourselves from this kind of more spiritually connected? Well, let, let's in, let's. I, I think some people can probably live their whole lives in that paradigm yeah. of believing they don't have a mythology, right. and by not recognizing their own mythology, it's not just that they're hurting. Or you know, I can't remember what words you use, just um, like shooting themselves in the foot or something. Yeah. But they're also missing out on the opportunity to leverage the mythologies in their own directions, as mm -hmm. I would say. So, uh, in fact, it's sort of a cliche, right? But it's instead of arguing against someone else's mythology all the time, I think we're missing an opportunity when we don't form even for our own personal lives our own mythology yeah. and reckon and and try to build something concrete out of that like we're so averse to putting a flag in the ground and saying this is what i believe right we're really good at saying you shouldn't believe that 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 or that right, right. or even so but but what's what's sad to me about it is we live in an era that I call sort of bumper sticker spirituality in which people never spend. So let's go back. So when you're in a religion, as I was in Mormonism, right? Let's take away from it all the specifics of whatever the beliefs were that you yeah. and I may have problems with. Once a week on Sundays and every day of the week uh, when I was older for what we call seminary, it's a class before I went to school. I got to meet in a community of people and talk about our values and our philosophy and figure out ways to practice those values and philosophy and implement them in concrete, practical, practical ways. Right. Yeah. And my life in Seattle had almost none of that. In fact, so I remember, sorry to drone on, but I was <laughs> at, one, <laughs> at one point in my career, I was what's called the council liaison between the mayor of Seattle and the city council. Mm -hmm. And I tried to organize. I thought, you know, it's kind of crazy. We never talk about the philosophical foundations of the work we're trying to do here, the laws we're trying to implement, the rights. and all, Like, it's all sort of amorphous and out there. And I tried to organize a coming together of all the council members um, and the mayor. And some of them expressed some interest, but I could never get it off the ground to actually talk about, you know, what are our foundational beliefs? And if we had done that, uh, it was a really troubled time. It was a horrible job, actually, to have because the mayor hated the council and the council hated the mayor. But if we could have at least come together and talked about some of our foundational ideas that we shared in common, we missed that opportunity, I think, by not recognizing our own mythologies and leveraging those to be able to move all of our agendas forward, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, of course. But yeah, this idea that we can't escape it i mean i really do i really don't think we can i don't understand how a life is anything but a mythology really yeah and, and so like i'd say again though i think you can you can live in the mush of not recognizing yeah it. Totally, totally and so you can spend and and i think most of us right now are living in that mush of not leveraging what so we we all we left religion right without recognizing that 
Oh, yeah, you're so, talking about the bumper stickers. For yeah, thing. yeah, right. Yeah. And not recognize it. So I go back to, and we'll get into this later, you know, my current push is all about tribalism again. And I believe that we should, those of us to who this appeals, not we in the global sense, yeah. <laughs> um, that we could find power by living in committed, committed communities again. But in, in many ways, I describe this this project that I'm working on is as creating a new religion. But to me, it goes back before that. If you go back to early tribalism, there was no separation of church and state. Like that's a modern invention since the enlightenment. And, and it's been great for all sorts of reasons to extract us from the certain forms of religion that existed at that time. Right. And so in tribalism, you had the marriage of family, politics, spirituality, all of that were merged into this one group. And there was power in that. And now that we've separated it all out, I don't think any of them really work that well on their own. Like, to, to really talk about politics without talking about your spiritual foundation and your moral values and things. And, you know, that's what I said at the beginning. It's, it's odd that we now teach all the kids that they should go, grow up and change the world, but we don't, we don't ground anybody in some sense of, spiritual values and morals uh, in a way that would actually shape their ability to, to ethically change the world. And so, yeah. Yeah. And I think this also gets into what we've talked about a lot as it relates to individualism and, you know, I struggle and I'm sure you can relate to this too, because I feel like in my own way, I grew up under a set of false pretenses. Like I was told certain stories and certain mythologies about the world and I constructed my identity underneath those or, you know, embedded within them. And then it was really important for me in a moment in time for me to become sort of fiercely individualistic as I rebelled against the toxicity of the kind of group think or, you know, right. And I feel like this is happening a lot right now, which is like people are waking up to the fact that like we can't necessarily trust the government and we can't necessarily trust the medical industrial complex. And, you know, we can't uh, take for granted the, the narratives that we've been fed. And it's like, it's sort of like anger to me in a way. It's like anger serves a really great specific temporary purpose. But if we stay there too long, we're missing the point. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's a good place to start and a terrible place to stop. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, like with our reaction to COVID or any of these things, like I get it. I get that you're angry and I get that you're feeling the need to say like, I need to protect myself at all costs because you haven't felt protected. Um, and this thing I always say that like our reaction to like in our in the process of correcting we overcorrect right like yeah. oh my god like i'm addicted to this substance and i can't be around anyone with it or that sells it and you know i have to completely move super far away from it or i have to cut contact with this person um but eventually is the point not to recognize that we are a communal species and that maybe there are just better ways to do it so <laughs> So the mythology that most of us are living under is called the Enlightenment. Yeah. It's this whole set of philosophical and mythological beliefs about the direction that humanity should go. And it has been overwhelmingly successful. And in my book, I write about this part in which 
I now see myself as the perfect fulfillment and embodiment of enlightened ideals. I'm sitting in my cabin alone in San Cristobal del Alto in Guatemala on my own. Happy as can be because I'm fulfilling exactly what the Enlightenment authors wanted. And, and very few of them had the opportunity to see that in practice the way you and I and many of us now see it in practice. And so it's this beautiful, radical individualism I live. I, I mean, I've built this life. I've left everything. I've left my religion. I've left my city. I've become a digital nomad and I live out amongst the world. And now I end up in this cabin all alone. Yeah. By myself. I worked in politics. I, like I've done everything the Enlightenment thinkers had said I should do. They didn't have the ability to see what the outcome of that would be. And now I see it. And it's a lonely place to be. Yeah. Right? And it, there's this, uh, this cliche of a song. I almost hate to bring it up. But I think it's almost the perfect embodiment of where we're at right now. It's the, it's the greatest love of all made famous by Whitney Houston and written by George Benson. But... It, you know, it talks about this, it comes out of this self-esteem movement that grew out of California, and it talked about how the greatest thing you can do is learn to love yourself. Yeah. And there's this line, there's this verse right at the very end of it that says, and if you find yourself in a lonely place, just remember you've got the greatest love of all, yourself. Yeah. But it's saying, <laughs> if you end up lonely, oh well, that's the cost of it all, right? Yeah. And I now look back at the U.S. and Western, like I think... There's a nuance here. I'm not saying it's terrible. I actually think we had to hit this radical individualism. Mm. But I now look at it now in the U.S. and I, I it's an illness. Like, and and I don't just mean the right or the. I just mean everybody's. I mean, everyone would agree that the world is fucked up. Yeah. But most people now think that the way we're going to fix it is to go farther and farther and farther down this path of individualism. Yeah. Right. To to completely radically separate ourselves from each other in ways that, you know, we end up alone in a cabin in yeah. Guatemala <laughs> writing philosophy. Could be worse. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, and I think this is what's also happening again, because we're totally unaware of humans being a communal species or unaware of our, the you know, the narratives and the mythologies that we're operating under, where I feel like, cancel culture and all these identitarian movements like what's happening is people are forming community um uh along with their anger like the community is now sure. oh you're angry like me you've been abused like me you've been traumatized like me right. let's form the unprocessed trauma community right and like it's it's frustrating because I feel some sympathy and empathy toward like sure. people who have been alone and haven't been able to relate to anyone or be in a community about this, but we can't form, at least in my opinion, like productive, long lasting communities based on an underlying, you know, anger or trauma or discomfort, you know? So I would say, actually, I, I don't believe that very, I don't believe hardly any of us actually live in what I would now call legitimate community. Yeah. Um, because I believe, and it goes back to what I was saying, the, and I'm not saying we go back to tribalism the way it was. The reason I say that we don't live in legitimate community is because as, as you said, all of our mythologies or, you know, we're still existing in this consumerist view, but all of our ideas of community clear down to monogamy and nuclear family exist 
came from pre-enlightenment ideals, right? And we keep trying to make these old types and forms of community work in this modern, radically individualist world. Yeah. And, and so what that means is nobody's willing to commit to anything. Nobody's willing to say, here's where I stand. And part of the problem we have is because we now have this idea that we should be one global tribe. And this is a horrible idea, but it's very, everyone says it, like one day we're going to be one. And I write about how, you know, there's that point where in 1968, the astronaut turns the camera around and he takes that picture of the earth. And it suddenly became this thing that we thought we could hold in our hands. And we thought we could understand how many, 7 billion people. And mm. we thought we could all hold hands. And, and it's not so much that I'm saying that that's a terrible thing to want. But what we've started, we've lost the idea of focusing on our, our core community, our small groups. And then we've lost, we've lost what I think is the technology to be able to do that. Mm. You know, lots of people go off and build communes and say, well, let's be in a community, right? But there are lessons to be learned about how our, our ancestors built tribes, what it took to build trust. It's story, it's, it's shared story and mythology, it's shared values, it's shared ritual. Like those are things that we are loath to do now, because when we say I'm spiritual, not religious, what we're saying, that's saying I'm individualist, not communalist, right? right? Religion was a way to practice these spiritual ideas together. Mm -hmm. But when we say we're spiritual, we're saying I can't join, you know, it's too restricting to me. Uh, and so I, I don't believe the type of community we need even exists. And that's what I'm that's what my passion is right now is trying to conceive of a completely new form of tribalism that gives equal value to the individual and the group. Yeah. And I, th I don't think we have any models for that. Yeah. So what was, uh, I mean, again, I'm sure it happened over a, a period of time, but when did you start to think about this project? Um, what was your sort of like coming full circle moment of like maybe some of that Mormon stuff wasn't so bad after <laughs> Um, part of it was, so I spent, after I left Seattle, I spent a year living in Mexico in different places. And I toured a lot of, uh, Mayan and Aztec ruins. And I became fascinated with, uh, their use of symbol and their use of mythology to bind their communities together. And so all of these ideas like this, to be honest, the roots of this project go back maybe 20 years, but there were some there were moments in which I recognized that we are lacking. It started with this idea that we're lacking in a shared understanding of our, our creation myth, right? Leftist liberals don't think they have a creation myth. But as I said, you know, even if you believe in the Big Bang, that's what you believe to be true. That's your mythology. And you can't say it's absolutely true because if you're a scientific-minded person, you know that new information will come and that will evolve. But our current story is a story. And by not recognizing and owning that story, we're losing out all the power that it would have to unite us. So I, there's thing about symboli, symbology, for example. Let's say you're Catholic and you're traveling the world and you get lost and someone robs you and you have no money. You lost your passport. Um, let's say it's a large, like say you're in a largely Muslim country and you, you're sitting there on a bench and you don't know what to do or where to go. But across the way you see somebody cross themselves 
And in that moment, you know, you have a shared story and understanding of who that person is. Mm. It's, and that thinking about that led me to think about what is it that allows us to build trust? And these are sort of the things that allow us to build trust within groups and communities. And we've, we've lost that. So that was a big moment for me. And it's when I, so this is what all my symbols now come. So this is my own creation myth, this whole tattoo here. Um, but there was also another moment here in Antigua where it's Antigua is the world's largest, the, the, it's the largest celebration of Holy Week in the world, in this one little Guatemalan town. It's a million people come through this town and they have these really elaborate um, floats that they carry. And it's, and I remember sitting on the side of a street and watching this float go by, being carried by 90 people, all dressed similarly, but also in a very solemn, serious manner, celebrating their own mythologies and their own beliefs, right? And I, you know, we can all say, oh, that's terrible. But at that moment, I thought how horrible it is that in my leftist Seattle political culture, we would never do anything like that. Like there was nothing that we shared enough that we would, for a week, celebrate that together and and have things that are sacred mm-hmm. and solemn and important. And it was a really powerful moment for me. So the next year I signed up to carry a float. I, you know, I'm not Catholic, but I went and I had the experience of, of seeing what that was like. And it reminded me of some of the things I'd lost from growing up Mormon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. When you were, did you feel in that moment, even though you weren't Catholic standing with all of those people, some degree of, community with them or was yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's almost inevitable. Yeah. And, and those are the kinds of things that in my life, having left that religion and having lived in that anger for so many years, that's, that's what I mean. Like we're losing the opportunities to bind ourselves. Yeah. One, because we're trying to do it too big. Mm-hmm. We're trying to do it on a global scale. Right. In fact, I think it's this lack of community that in some ways, the identitarian movements we've talked about are driving that to these insane levels. Because if you don't have a community in which you're accepted and loved on a small scale, Mm -hmm. and you think that the only answer is to be accepted and loved globally, then that's what you think you have to be. Right. right? And, and of course, again, those political movements are important and I would never deny that. But I think, how much healthier it would be. In fact, the Black Black Lives Matter is sort of an example because I do think they have a certain bond that's different than some of the other identitarian movements. But if you go back to the Civil Rights Movement, they had shared mythology that they were using and they felt in the way that I was a little kid on that playground who was being attacked for being Mormon, but I felt strengthened by, and that strengthened me in my community. Um, I'm wondering if some of our modern political movements because it's all anger and there is no other spiritual basis for the movement. Right, exactly. If they're losing some of that sense of community that they could have. Right. So I've now, did you watch the Chappelle special? I did. Okay. So did I. Um, and of course I watched it like after many people had watched it and after the world, you know, kind of responded to it. And of course, unsurprisingly, at least before I watched it, unsurprisingly, you know, all the trans community and the gay community and whatever the, the woman community, whatever that feminist community, um, 
were all so offended and so up in arms. And I think, okay, I've watched Chappelle's specials. Like, I don't find them offensive, even though I feel myself to be very progressive and in support of the same principles. Um, But okay, I get it. You know, he says things that are taboo and unconventional and people get offended. But I was, I mean, after watching this special where he literally dedicates half of the fucking thing to his trans friend, like... I just want to say, like, did any of you people watch this? And if you did watch it, were you listening? Because it, it blow, like, and this is what's so frustrating. We were talking about this with my dad last night, like, and he's, my, my father works in theater and he, um, works at this theater in, um, in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota. And, um, is constantly coming up against, you know, what I think many people, I don't know a lot of people with normal jobs, <laughs> but I think what many people who have normal, quote unquote, normal jobs are coming up against as far as like, you know, like, okay, I can't make any kind of sexual innuendo joke and I can't say this and I have to say this in the specific way. Like it's being so policed and it's so intense. Um, but like the, the, and he says what's so frustrating for him, I mean, especially as a gay man who to some extent understands what it's like to be discriminated against and have to be in a closet and not have equal rights, that like the stupid part about all of this is, you know, like my dad and I, for example, we agree with where these movements want to go. Like, I don't give a shit what you want to call yourself or how you identify or what you wear or what bathroom you go into. I mean, I truly, absolutely want equal rights for all people. Like, if it comes down to what it is we're fighting for, I think we're all in agreement. And the the alienation and the problem is coming from the fact that we disagree on the means by which to accomplish these things. Well, so... We'll tie it back in full circle to me yeah. being a little Mormon kid arguing on the playground. There, there was no reasoned argument for the first 25 years of my life that anybody could have had with me to convince me that I wasn't absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So there was, you know, when you you serve a Mormon mission, it's I've looked back on this now like, how arrogant it is to send 19-year-old kids out into the world to teach everybody what the actual truth is, right? Yeah. And and because I've always been naturally curious, right, I always did want to have sort of deeper conversations, but in no way could have I allowed any room for the idea that I wasn't absolutely right. And, and I see this same thing happening in some of the identitarian movements. Mm-hmm. It's not that... So I talk about, like... We have to separate. There's a difference between, for example, our biological drives and the cultural overlays that we use to satisfy those. So you're hungry. Because you're hungry, it doesn't say anything about breakfast, lunch, and dinner or Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> like those are cultural overlays. And sometimes I feel like in these movements, and, and again, I was in the middle of all this in Seattle to yeah. such a degree, um, we start attaching these end things to to like for example you could say gay marriage has to be and i agree with that but that's also it's not a fact that's a cultural overlay on the idea of respect and recognition for gay people right but 
sometimes I feel like it gets so caught up in this idea that, okay, so a comedian can never make fun of my community. Yeah. Right. And, and that's what it means to be equal. No, that's a cultural over, that's an idea of a cultural overlay of right. what it means to be equal. Right? right. And, and that can become, that becomes the religious belief. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's also, in a weird way, it's doing what I've sort of said. Like you, there is a power in, in choosing these, these cultural mythologies and attaching to them. And it can propel groups forward. But I, you know, I've come, I just think we're, it's become a shit show. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, in Seattle, the homosexual community and the trans community hate each other and the lesbians and the gays hate each other. Like it's, nobody can speak for that. You know, it used to be that that was, you know, it was combined under an umbrella, but Seattle has sort of become a parody. And that's partly why I had to leave, you know, when I was in the middle of it, like, so we've got socialists and fighting the Bernie Kratz and we've got like, everybody hates everybody. And it's like, we've lost this idea of big tent politics. Right. And we're now in this world of small tent politics. Everyone thinks we're going to go smaller and smaller and smaller to win the bigger and bigger issues. And it just has never worked that way. And it can never work that way. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think in all of these conversations, when thinking about all of these issues, and I think about them a lot, and I know you do too, that this is really, to me, comes back to a problem of scale. Right. Like, yeah. We, I, there's so, you know, and, and I think about the, even the simply like, you know, I, we go camping, we spend a lot of time in national forests or in campgrounds and, you know, they have these fire bans or there are just these specific rules, right. That apply. You can't do this. You can't do this. And of course, for each individual, like, well, but I'm really good. You know, why can't I as an individual make a judgment call about like how close the trees are, how good my fire building abilities are and how much wind there is. Right. But no, of course, because we have this many people on this amount of land, we can't possibly make rules or policies specific to one person. And I think we're seeing this as far as the COVID response goes too. like everyone has their own nuanced, personal, contextual experience as to how they're going to address this virus and yet to me it's like but we've i mean uh consciously or not we've kind of by existing like have opted into this large scale kind of a civilization and it's like sometimes i feel like we want to have our cake and eat it too like i want protections from the government for xyz but I don't have, I shouldn't have to participate in the, you know, ABC sure. um, because those things don't apply to me. And it really does make me think that like even trying to solve any of these things or address any of these things at the scale that we're at, um, you know, climate change is another one. Like I think we have a problem if the entire environmental movement is still umbrellaed under the idea of consumption and capitalism. Sure. But at the same time, like I'm not an idiot to, you know, I, I know that not everyone has the intelligence or the privilege or the wherewithal to even know what the fuck could some, you know, consumerism or capitalism is, let alone create a life you know, where they're not participating in that. So like in the meantime, is it best we recycle, you know, like I just get really, 
I get stuck in my own idealism sometimes because I think the solutions that I'd like to see are going to be really hard to come about in this global context. So, and to me, scale is everything. And we've talked about this. To me, it's all about scale. And and the human animal is now living at a scale that it was never designed to live at. And because, as I said earlier, I don't believe any legitimate form of community actually still exists. You know, maybe we can talk about some religious affiliation that gets close. But in the modern leftist, atheist, political world, I don't think there we do live in any form of community. And because of this, what we're saying, I almost don't think we can adequately judge. Like, I think everything's slated to fail in a certain way. And I have to be nuanced about that because in certain ways I could say that, you know, if we just, if, if survival is the measurement, then the human animal has reached a point where, you know, it's, it's surviving much better than any previous generation did. Or, you know, that could be Chris, we could talk about progress and (laughs) angels in America and movement (laughs) and all that. But the point being, I've almost come to believe that everything we're trying to do right now, it's like, it's like we're a fish that has been taken out of water and and we keep trying to design well maybe that fish if it wears this kind of suit if it eats this kind of food (laughs) if we get this kind of technology it will prop up this idea that it's a fish out of water (laughs) we are now individualist out of community yeah and almost everything we're trying to do right now is i think making it all worse and it doesn't mean that all of these issues aren't important and so I, at the beginning of my book, I say, what I want you to do, so I make this statement, I say, Western culture has failed. And I say, if I were writing a traditional, modern, pop, sociology, psychology book, I would have to then define the ways in which I'd have to define Western culture, and I'd have to define the way it's failed, and then I'd have to cite scientific double-blind studies that prove that it has failed. (laughs) Sure. I mean, I would have to prove that. Yeah. Right? And, and And I say... Imagine there was a poll that said 75% of Americans are happy with life the way it is, right? The other 20, there'd be a lot of people in that 25% who would say, ah, I guess I have to, I have to adjust, right? And then I say, no, Western civilization has failed me. And I think we have to get back to the scale of our own lives, right? We live under utilitarianism, which has, has taught us the trolley problem in which We're talking about the trolley on the track. You're supposed to carry about the five more than the one, right? So you could pull the lever and change the trolley so it kills the one person and not the five. But it has, to me, that's completely out of scale because if if that one were somebody you loved, do you actually want to live in a world in which a mother pulls a lever to kill her child to save the five strangers she doesn't know? In a mathematical sense, that makes sense. But when we talk about scale, if I if I peel away the layers of the word scale that we're using, underneath that to me is the word love. And I don't care who you are as a human animal. You can't love the 7 billion people you don't actually know. It's an illusion of love, right? And it's actually an imposition of your own ego upon what you think that love should look like for those people. But because we're out of this scale of love, um, 
not, I just don't think anything else really works. Until, unless you're in a scale of love, then almost everything we're trying to do, I think, takes us further down this path of, of alienation. And, and again, I, I actually don't say that's a shit show. I think in many ways, as I said, I'm really happy with the life I built living in. I love my cabin and I love the freedom I have to write. Um, and so I think that's a good thing. And so, but to me, it's not, we're no longer at the level of survival per se. I'm just wondering, what are we missing out on? Like what level could we get to if we could figure out how to bring us back down to the scale of love yeah. and community and belonging without sacrificing our individuality? Right. So. Yeah. I mean, I think we would never have cancel culture if we were operating from this much smaller scale community mindset, because the whole, like you can't judge a person on their one mistake, a person you don't have any idea who they are and you're just reading into something they've said on the internet or, and like in a smaller community, you know, one, you can't just, let's say like hoard all the food for yourself because everyone will be like, Hey dude, that's not cool. And if you continue to do that, you won't be in the tribe. Um, but at the same time, if someone makes one mistake, it's like at least the people that are judging that person actually fucking know that person. Like there may be like I'm willing to say that there may be some degree of like a positive aspect of, you know, shame and or remorse, but sure. not at the scale that we have. No, it again. Yeah. So as I said, we're living under the mythology of the Enlightenment. Yeah. Every mythology defines a demon. Mm hmm. The demon for, for the Enlightenment was tribalism itself. Right. And so for the past 400 years, this whole idea of tribalism has been enemy number one. And we, you hear it all the time still. Oh, tribalism, fall into tribalism, it's terrible. And, you know, as one of the people that we don't like is Chris and I, you know, Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. We could spend hours talking about this book itself. But he goes clear down this road of tribalism's bad, tribalism's bad, blah, 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 tribalism is terrible. And then he, his next book was called Enlightenment Now. And he's taking up the mantle of the Enlightenment thinkers. And he's, you know, tribalism is bad. But buried in the middle of that book, he cites this study of, there's a study of um, the Balkanized nations and when Russia broke apart. And, and they did this study of neighboring groups that had all the makings of being warring tribal, you know, and they found out that something like 96% of them never had a problem. Yeah. Right. And so we've used that 4% of tribalism to demonize what is core to our scale of community. And we've been taught that to love your group is to hate everybody else. And that is a mythology that the enlightenment taught us that I think doesn't work and doesn't fit and actually doesn't play out. Right. That, you know, I can love my group and be a member of my group and it doesn't immediately translate into hatred of the other. And in fact, I would say that's what we've lost now that we now that we don't love our group because we don't feel a part of our group. We hate everybody. Right. Right. Because we feel excluded and alienated and we don't have that core sense of belonging. Right. um, That enlightenment has taught us as evil. Right. And I I mean, I would love to get into more of the specifics of your project but I also think I remember having this like sort of silly epiphany like it was one of those like well of course moments but I hadn't quite thought about it in this context 
um, I interviewed this guy in Thailand who sort of similar to you is sort of trying to come up with this kind of like game plan for how we bring, you know, neo-tribalism or community back into our lives and talking about scale and all this. And he was really sort of, you know, far along in the process and he put these people together and they were doing these activities and they were working together and, you know, uh, trying to create things together and they had a cafe and all this stuff. And he said that, you know, one of the, we can think about community or belonging in these kind of more theoretical, intellectual ways that many of us agree with, because, you know, we've read the books and we understand anthropology and all this. Um, But one on a really practical level, he said, you know, like, one of the major things that we're missing as a result of not having a community and something that he's like, that almost kind of shocked me. in being in community was the extent to which you're mirrored and the extent to which you're sort of asked or needed to step up to the plate and figure your shit out, you know? Like, and this even happened when Chris and I first went to Crestone and we were talking about talking to people who live there and that's a community. I mean, I don't know if we can call it a community. It's a town of a thousand people, Um, but it's very small. And you see the same people in town. There's one cafe and one gas station and no traffic lights. And you, you know, and I remember she said, like, you know, you can't really be an asshole because you're going to see that person in the cafe the next day. And this kind of small, tight knit space, even if we don't agree on the same, you know, moral values, um, it really forces you to deal with your shit in a way look and that's so i i talk about how pre-enlightenment tribal religion was a thing that was given to you you had to do it Mm -hmm. because the gods etc you were forced to do it and if you didn't do it you're going to be destroyed right and the challenge of our time now is we have to choose to give up some of our individuality for our own reasons not because god is going to smite us down and i think i'm not convinced that we can do it like i'm working on my project and i have no illusions that this could actually come about um because i think we're so far down this road of radical individualism that we're so uncomfortable we're spiritual we're not religious we're so uncomfortable sacrificing any part but it has to be a choice now and because it's a choice that's less firm than a commandment, yeah. right? And, you know, you said earlier, you know, maybe there's some utility in shame and, you know, and there's lots of studies that talk about how gossip worked in tribes to, to keep norms, etc. So the question is, can we, I'm air quoting we, yeah. choose to be in community again? So when you start to think of this on the scale of the world, to me, that's when it gets actually more uncomfortable because now in a way we all sort of live now in the averaging of modern culture and i find that really unsatisfying to live in the averaging ideas of millions and millions of people what i'd rather do is find my group of people who share enough in common with me who we share a common mythology to where yes i have to sacrifice and yes it's going to be uncomfortable but we do have our core values are similar enough to allow me to feel at home within that group. 
but right now, you know, even Mormonism was trying to be a global universal religion. Like it's trying to dominate everybody, right? And again, back to scale, I, the part of my theory is if, if you can find your group of people who share enough with you in common already that you're not having to give up everything, right. um, to me that, that could be a catalyst. Yeah. And, and that's part of what I think is missing is in most of these communal attempts – in, as I've told you, in a way, I'm starting a cult because I'm going to ask you to commit to certain things. And the community would commit to certain things in return to you. But part of that is putting your flag in the ground and saying, I believe this. Not being afraid to recognize your own mythologies and then leveraging your own mythologies. And that's, we just don't know how to do that. Yeah. I think it's only a cult if people want to leave and you say no. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think it's a cult. Yeah, but I, I mean, mean, I'm, I'm joking around starting it. A cult, so. I joke around it. But I, I, I made this statement recently on Facebook where I said, normal is a cult. Yeah. Right. And nobody got what I meant. And what I meant is, you know, it's whatever vantage point you're, you're judging the other group through, you know, you can turn that same mirror around and judge yourself. Like mm -hmm. there's... Like, how hard is it to leave normal? Okay, right. so what you just said, like, it's only a cult if, you know, you're not allowed to leave. Yeah. But it's almost, I mean, let's get back to what we talked about, open marriage and stuff. Yeah. Like, monogamy is is damn near a cult, Yeah. right? And it doesn't mean that we don't want love or, you know, but it's very hard to leave that paradigm. Right. Like we're not necessarily intentionally choosing it and then it and we have a really hard time leaving which yes is i would agree is very cool <laughs> yeah um so can you talk i know it's a major huge project that you're doing but like how you intend to uh hold this community that values both you know communal mindsets and individualism and then i would also say that what you're thinking about is kind of nomadic in a way as well so it's not necessarily relegated to one little piece of land so there's sort of two sides to my project one is i'm outlining what any group of 150 like what are the steps that you would need to take to unify a group of people yeah so on one i'm building this project in which anybody could plug in their own variables and do that and yeah. i'm trying to lay out this are actually the kinds of things you need to do to make a group cohere mm -hmm. But the other side is I'm actually doing those things and I hope to implement it and I hope to build my group. And one of those is, as I said, so I say you need three things. You need shared story, shared values, and shared ritual. And the shared story is the thing that's going to help you find your people that you're close enough to. Mm -hmm. And I've built a big part of my project that you really haven't seen yet is the easiest way to say it is it's sort of a, it's my own modern creation myth. And it's a whole, it's like a Bible of, what I view as, as the current paradigms in our modern world, but told in a mythological way or a way that could become mythological. Yeah. And so the first step would be to, to present these ideas to individuals, to show them what I'm doing and saying, how does, does this story resonate with you? Yeah. And through story, you know, building um, a community of people, but then then you get into values. So the way I have it is each of these symbols. So, for example, this is what I call the pre-verse. Mm -hmm. And this is my creation myth. This is pre-human. 
this is what I believe, this are my beliefs about how we arrive to this point of consciousness, mm -hmm. right? But attached to each of these points are values. Mm -hmm. So the values derive, you know, most people would say, yeah, I've got values. But if you ask them to define it, almost nobody can. Like almost nobody can say, well, you know, you should be a good person. But it's so vague and amorphous that, again, we're losing the ability, the power that that could bring. So it would be shared story, shared values, and then ritual. And this is a big part that I think a lot of communities miss is ritual is the way you take these abstract ideas, these abstract values, and you make them physical in some way. You make them practicable. Yeah. It's something that you can do on a daily basis. And why that's important gets back to my story about the Catholic crossing themselves, right? If, if you've lived next to a person for three years and you've seen them practicing these values and these rituals right alongside you every day, it tells you things about them. I, like, I think the way we get married now, and I did it twice, with almost no rituals and no shared values. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we even know? Like, like, we don't have a method for building trust amongst people anymore. Yeah. And yet we throw our lives together around physical passion and expect that to be the foundation. And it's a horrible foundation. Anyway, yeah. I ramble. <laughs> and what's the nomadic piece for you? So in my, so here's my, I'll give you my perfect vision of what I think a modern tribe would be. Okay. One, I, I, I'm not saying this is wrong for everybody. Again, I'm down to scale. I'm not yeah. making a judgment for the world or what everybody should do. But I personally have no interest in dropping out and going to a commune on a farm somewhere and living the agricultural lifestyle that has been accredited with many of the problems that we currently have. And we live in an era now where we can be nomadic again. We live in, especially after COVID, like we're all, we live in an era where you can move around the world. So my ideal tribe would be uh, a group of 150 people who are broken up into, um, Clans of nine, bands of 50, and then a tribe of 150. And you, your main group is your small group of nine. Mm -hmm. But you, then you interact with each subse subsequent group. But, for example, say my tribe owned a block here in Antigua in which we ran several businesses together. Um, but we also had a place, our tribe had a place in Mexico City, and we had another place in another city. And you have the freedom to move between those those areas to pick up work in one area to take it to another, but to be mobile in that way. And I have this vision of, um, and to me, we haven't talked about clothing at all. Um, I'm fascinated by the way, uh, ancient tribes used to dress similarly. And I, like I envision this group of nine of us in a tribe dressed, not exactly the same, but in a theme modernly designed and, you know, walking through an airport and people just being really stunned by the power that that could present. Right. Like I, I, in a certain way, I'd like to leverage the power of a group, um, to sort of lift the whole group, to love my group. And, uh, that's sort of my yeah. crazy vision. And you can see though, I mean, I feel like there have been, as we've spoken about, uh, a bit like, tribes or communities or communes of people that have attempted this right sure. or and that have dressed similarly or agreed to a set of moral standards can you kind of define where you think those 
went off track in a way that what you were I, in my about. research I think most of them have not asked enough of their members hmm. one and two have not you know I, I, it's hard for me to criticize them but in a, in a certain way to me this is what all culture is this is what all groups do they're all, every culture is trying some new set of beliefs and values and practices to see if it elevates their group. And if it doesn't work, their group suffers. Yeah. So if the group didn't last, then we can say that whatever the combination of things that they tried to do didn't work, right? Um, you know, you, we can make fun of religion, and I've done my fair share, but, you know, the Catholic Church has existed for how long? The Jewish religion has existed for how long? Like, there's something they're doing, right? And this is what I'm saying is, divorce it from the specific beliefs and break it down to what are the things they're doing and how can you incorporate those things into a, the modern version of a tribe and put your own beliefs and values into that. Yeah. And so I, like, I look at a lot of, the, you know, we can make fun of, the, like, the free love movement that they found a plot of land and they, the hippies went out and they lived together. But I, I often think their values weren't, weren't established enough. Yeah. Their rituals weren't established enough. They didn't ask each other. They didn't have a very clear understanding, I think, of what they are doing and how you do it. I mean, so the question is, it's all about trust. How does a community build trust? And if you go look at groups that have lasted for thousands of years, there's very specific answers to what they do to build trust within the group. Can that be made to work in our modern radical individualist world? That's that's the gamble I'm taking and, and what I'm what I'm hoping to achieve. Um, yeah, I mean, and I also think like I wonder what and why I'm sort of drawn to your idea of this kind of nomadic thing and also in my own personal cult, um, which I feel like I envision slightly differently, but there is this in and like in and outflow of energy. And I also wonder if some of those other communities or communes that, you know, the reason they didn't work is because they got actually too fundamentalist. And I wonder if like, you know, a religion or a tribe or a set of belief systems can last a really long time for a couple of reasons. One, because they're excruciatingly fundamentalist and rigid, like maybe let's say in Catholicism, or I think maybe like some uh, denominations of Judaism or something else that they're constantly responding to an evolving, quote unquote, progressing sure. human race, right? Sure. And I... I think that kind of, and understandably, I think that kind of fluidity or that kind of movement feels a little bit scary or overwhelming because we think that that might mean that people would leave or would betray us or have different values. And I, I wonder if it's possible to kind of embrace that sort of energy of people coming and going and then more people come and then some people leave and there's this kind of sharing of an idea and this sort of like cyclical growth yeah. that can occur. There's a motto that sits at the core of my whole project yeah. and it's what I envision my group to be. And it says, you are my foundation. I am your extension. Mm. And the idea is that the community 
is the foundation that the individual can use to launch forward, to explore new things, mm. and then bring those new ideas back to the community. And so many community, what I like, current existing models of community subsume the individual completely without allowing that individual to be their extension, to recognizing the value that that individual going out into the world can bring back to the community. Right. Now, Joseph Campbell talked about this hero's journey. That's supposedly that, where the individual goes out and comes back. But the problem with the previous paradigm is, let's take, for example, the movie The Wizard of Oz. So Dorothy goes on this magical journey, and she comes back, and her takeaway, what, what the end is, is there's no place like home, meaning everything was perfect already. Right. But see, if you go back in our own mythology about knowledge, up until the last few centuries, knowledge has always been a backwards-looking thing. So if you have a religious belief and you believe in a God who knows everything, then there is no such thing as new knowledge that can be gathered. And so all knowledge to these tribes were the community and the tribe was to, to guard traditional knowledge. Mm. But now we're in this paradigm in which that's all been blown apart. We now know that new knowledge comes from the future, comes from the unknown, right? right? And that's why you need the extension. That's why a community needs that extension of individuals going out and finding and bringing back new right. things so that the community can be uh, made new over and over again. And that's the model that I just don't think exists. Right. Yeah, I mean, in coming for a full circle, I think also differs from, let's say, Mormonism, uh, where it's not go out and experience things and gain new insights and ideas and bring them back, but in fact, take our ideas and proliferate absolutely. them, right? Which is like a very, very right. different. No, um, you're absolutely yeah. right. In fact, I hadn't put that together until yeah. just now. That's exactly. So, yeah, I served a two-year mission, and it was a great experience to go to a foreign country and learn a foreign language and learn all these new things. But that sort of gets at the opportunity lost that I was there telling everybody <laughs> what they exactly. should know rather than learning new things that I could bring back to my community. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and again, this speaks to scale. And like, I think one of the most important lessons for me, and I just talked about this on a podcast intro that like, I when I first decided I wanted to create a community that I think just the kind of mode I was operating within, and what I know I'm good at, which is like coming up with systems and efficiencies, I thought like, okay, I'm going to come up with like the model and everyone else, like I'm going to create my community, but then I'm going to like somehow sell this concept to the masses. And like, thankfully I was, you know, self-reflective and kind of open to being guided in whatever direction I was meant to be guided. And like over and over and over again, very clearly the message I got was like, no, no, no. Like you create your thing that works for you and whomever else wants to participate, but you can't export your own specific right. tribal ideology to the world. Well, um, I find this ironic, right? Everyone thinks they're going to change the world. Yeah. But they also hate colonialism. But isn't this idea that you're going to go out and change right. the world right. colonial? Right. Like, I mean, it's like this idea that some individual or even some small group of people know what's best for the whole world. Right. Like, are there global issues that are, of course, there are global issues that we should care about. But, you know, I, over and over again, I see in Seattle in my own life, right? We, 
I was so wrapped up in all these global issues. And meanwhile, my family was falling apart. And meanwhile, my community was falling apart. And, you know, the arrogance of me who can't hold together a community thinking I could change the world. I mean, there's something really ironic about that. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think the whole, like, concept for my podcast about fix yourself to fix the world. It's, it's like, also, like, fix your drive to fix the world, you know, focus on what's close to you. But even when you say that, sometimes I, because, you know, that's, you know, act locally, think globally. Like, the, the focus still tends to be on the global picture, right? Yeah. I'm acting locally so I can change the world. Yeah. Rather than, this is my life. Right. You know, we say the world is going to end. Right. Like yeah. we can talk about environmentalism. If we don't do this, the world is going to end. Well, your world is going to end. Yeah. Your friend's world is going like people's worlds end every day. People die every day. Right. Like the scale of your life, that should be the most important world that you're caring about first. Right. Like, yes, I care about the bigger world is going to end. But what about my own world that I'm currently inhabiting? Right. right? It's going to end there's going to be disaster in this life. And I think we've lost vision of that scale again. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. And I, I think the more I come back to this again with the scale is like, you know, for me, the fixing yourself to fix the world thing is like, you really only have power over yourself. And I, I truly believe that like, if I can live a happy, fulfilling life full of generosity and community and belonging and extend that to a small group of people and then have them potentially extend that in their own way to a group of people that that is so much more like I mean this to some people might sound super privileged and self-centered but like our own fulfillment and happiness and belonging in an on an in an individual way I think is the only thing we really have control over at the end of the day. And like, maybe it it might take a while and the world may very well end before this idealist thing comes to fruition. But like, I don't see how else to quote unquote, save the world through global concepts and through recycling and through buying electric cars and all of this. It's like, I'm going to change my own mythology and I'm going to bring people into that or at least inspire them to do the same. And that maybe over time that will proliferate in a way in which we're not going to get to, you know, we can somehow again, like cycle back around to something different. I use this analogy. So we have all these reality TV shows right now. So let's take, American Idol as an example of a reality TV show. And we have all these incredibly, incredibly talented musicians and artists and singers and, and they go on these shows and their goal is to win. And if they don't win, if they're not dominating on a global scale, they feel crushed. They feel like, like what's the point of this whole, this, this talent I have, I've lost everything, right? I mean, there's been stories of people who committed suicide after losing these things. So contrast that to the idea, let's say you have this incredible talent to play a guitar and you could use that talent to bring joy to your group of 150 people. And, and that was the basis of the joy. Like what a blessing that would be. Now, might you someday also become globally famous? Great. But if, at the core, you recognize that your value is not in that side of it, in the global side of it, but in 
being able to share your talents within your small group and community, it changes the whole dynamic of it. And I feel in some way that's a metaphor for sort of where we're all at. Like, like the idea that the world's going to someday be perfect, like that's an abstract ideal that how does that relate to your own joy and love and acceptance and belonging in your life today? Yeah. You know, someday you'll be happy when the environment is perfect. Yeah. Like, no, you never get there. No. And I'm saying build your mythology around goals that you can achieve around a life that's sustainable for you and valuable to you. So, yeah, that was a perfect place to end it. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Tim. This was really enjoyable. And as per usual, we could probably talk for another 12 hours. And we probably will. <laughs> we will. We will continue <laughs> the podcast through the rest of the day. Yeah. Um, can people find you anywhere or contact you anywhere if they're interested in what you're doing? You know, it's, it's really incomplete, but, um, the website I have up, it's called storyofexistence.com. It won't make a lot of sense at this point, but it will give you, that contains what I call my modern version of my Bible. In right. a sense, it sort of shows that, but it doesn't really, the book is still being written that explains the whole project. But right. you can go to storyofexistence.com and sign up for the cult newsletter. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and I also ask everyone, at the end of the podcast, uh, if they could recommend a book to the audience that was really impactful or meaningful for you. Uh, I think it's um, Sebastian Younger's Tribe. Like that, it's, it's short enough, you can read it in a single sitting, but it really talks about what we've lost uh, by losing small-scale community. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Tim. You bet. Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully we can have Timo on the podcast again because there are really uh, endless amount of things <laughs> to talk to him about. Um, I'm going to put his email in the description of the podcast episode if you'd like to reach out to him directly and visit his website. Um, again, if you'd like to support the podcast, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz is the way to do that. If you are in Thailand... Chris and I will be there for probably through February, starting December 7th. So if, you ha if you're there, if you want to meet up, we'll probably be on a small island most of the time. Um, but we'll take any recommendations or advice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I am going to play you actually a clip from Angels in America. This is near the end of the film. Uh, so some of it might be weird out of context, but basically one of the main characters is in heaven. Um, he was basically deemed a prophet and uh, it rejects, <laughs> rejects uh, the prophecy basically and is returning the book and explaining why. I highly, highly, highly recommend watching Angels in America if you can. Um, as I mentioned in the conversation with Tim, the first intro that I ever record to the podcast, I updated it since, but it used to end with the great work begins, which was a quote from Angels in America. I think this 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 work is so influential uh, to me and my views around the world. And every time I watch it, I 
gain so much more insight uh, and information about it and what it means to me. Tim and I watched the whole thing together, of course, and probably paused it like every 20 seconds <laughs> to discuss, which was really fun. Um, so definitely watch it if you can. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to share it with you. I know it's a sort of weird um, fringe thing, but uh, super fucking meaningful and complex and dense. So you're going to hear a clip from Angels in America and then uh, More Life, which is another piece of music. And then I'm going to play you out with a song called Mango. And this was a song uh, that Tim introduced me to. Um, it was really funny. We were talking, obviously, about mythology and how so much of our mythology is shaped by pop culture. And what's one thing that's a part of pop culture is music, of course. And he asked me if I knew any songs that like talked in an intelligent way about non-monogamy or unconventional relationships. And um, there are very, very, very few. And he introduced me to this one, uh, Mango featuring, featuring Adeline by Camus and Adeline. Um, and it's really beautiful. It's not really necessarily about unconventional relationships, but about being kind and loving even when a relationship ends and not being jealous if someone else falls in love with someone or leaves you to really you know value the time you had with them and honor the rest of their trajectory in life in relationships etc so that's what you're going to hear thank you as always for being here for listening to this podcast i hope to meet more of you in the patreon community or who knows somewhere around the world take care talk to you soon he wants to live. Yes, I'm 30 years old, for God's sake. I haven't done anything yet. I, I want to be healthy again. And this plague, it should stop in me and everywhere. Make it go away. We have tried. We suffer with you, but we don't know. We do not know how. This is the Tome of Immobility of respite. Stay in heaven. Don't return to life. Suffer no more. You choose. I can't. I still want my blessing. Even sick, I want to be alive. You only think you do. Life is a habit with you. You have not seen what is to come. We have. What will the grim unfolding of these latter days bring that you or any being should wish to endure them? Death, more plenteous than all heaven has tears to mourn it. The slow dissolving of the great design spiraling apart of the work of eternity, the world and its beautiful particle logic all collapsed, all dead forever. We are failing, failing, the earth and the angels. Oh, who asks of the order's blessing with apocalypse descending? Who demands more life? When death, like a protector, blinds our eyes, shielding from tender nerve, more horror than can be born. Let any being 
on whom fortune smiles creep away to death before that last dreadful daybreak when all your ravaging returns to you when morning blisters crimson and bears all life away a tidal wave of protean fire that curls around the planet and bears the earth clean as bone But still, still, bless me anyway. I want more life. I can't help myself. I do. I've lived through such terrible times, and there are people who live through much, much worse. But you see them living anyway. When they're more spirit than body, more sores than skin, when they're burned and in agony, when flies lay eggs in the corners of the eyes of their children, they live. Death usually has to take life away. I don't know if that's just the animal. I don't know if it's not braver to die, but I recognize the habit, the addiction to being alive. So we live past hope. If I can find hope anywhere, that's it. That's the best I can do. It's so much not enough. It's so inadequate. But still, bless me anyway. I want more life.
Just to talk to you. 